Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and today we're going to talk to Douglas Hunter about his biography of the great Canadian painter A.Y. Jackson and the origins of the Group of Seven. Douglas Hunter is one of Canada's most prolific nonfiction professional writers. He also has a PhD in history from York University and is the author or co-author of at least 20 nonfiction books, including Molson, a biography of John Molson and the founding of his brewery empire, God's Mercies, a history revealing the traumatic intersection of the careers of Henry Hudson and Samuel de Champlain, Half Moon, the story of Henry Hudson's discovery of the Hudson River, and Beardmore, the Viking hoax that rewrote history, which was published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2018 and concerns the contents of a presumed Viking grave from Northern Ontario that was on display for two decades at the Royal Ontario Museum. Douglas is also an artist who works as an illustrator and graphic designer. In his spare time, if he has any, he's a landscape artist, a passion which must have led him to his most recent book, Jackson's Wars, A.Y. Jackson, The Birth of the Group of Seven, and The Great War. This book was published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2022. Doug, it's a real pleasure to have you join us today. Thanks for having me. Doug, tell us why you decided to write this book. Although the focus is on the First World War, I note that you use the plural of war in the main title. Why do you do this? Yeah, so I guess the first question is why, why write this book about Jackson? Um, and it's not about the entire life of Jackson. There's something really appealing about doing biography that's fragmentary. Uh, he's approaching 38 when the group of seven forms. So I'm not attempting to do his whole life. Mm-hmm. And that's liberating for a biographer. I've done it a number of times with other subjects. And it lets you drill down much deeper into details than you might otherwise have. And I think with someone like Jackson, the most interesting part of his career professionally is really about 1910 to 1922. So you're capturing Jackson at, you know, the peak of his powers and a really important time because, you know, this new landscape movement is forming. And the war is this great traumatizing experience for so much of the country, including at Jackson. Um, and the group and and what will become the group itself they really barely it's a near run thing that that it almost doesn't come out of i think the lesson from it was that you have this trench of almost 5 years of his life and it lets you see an artist form but also once you get into that trench you start wondering well what's before the trench what's before 1914 and that's how you start to appreciate that this movement and the group are kind of they're linked, but they're not one and the same thing. Uh, and a lot of what the group is going to be is pretty much settled by 1913. So tell us about Jackson's childhood and adolescence. Where and how did he grow up? Jackson grew up in Montreal. He was born in 1882. Uh, he had a pretty rough start because his dad abandoned the family when Jackson was about nine. He took off and went to Chicago, um, left leaving a pile of debts behind. Uh, there were six kids 
And he was very close to his mother, Georgina, very close to his siblings. He finished school at age 12, like people generally did anyway at that time in grade six. But he had to go to work. They had to, they had to support themselves. So his older brother, Harry, was a graphic artist, uh, and he sort of followed Harry's example. And he started, you know, apprenticing just an office boy, really, in a, in a lithography company, but got into the art thing as he went. And um, so he was, you know, not unique, but it, but he, he, he was starting with nothing. So he had to support himself. He had to support the greater family. So he had to learn a trade, which was the commercial illustration side. But clearly by his early 20s, he was determined he was going to become an artist artist. Uh, his brother, Harry, was a very successful commercial artist, but Jackson was going to paint. He was quite determined to do that. So can you drill down a little bit and tell us how his early experiences shaped him as a young artist, in particular his experiences abroad in Chicago in the United States and then in Europe, especially at the Julian in Paris? Of the men, and it was a guy's thing, even though not all art would be done by women, but the landscape movement that became the group of seven, Jackson among them was really the most experienced, most best trained. He had been to the Chicago Art Institute, had studied there in the evening classes while working as a commercial artist, was really well trained as a commercial illustrator. He actually kind of underachieved as a commercial artist. He was doing catalog work mattresses and women's shoes and stuff for you know for advertising when he really could have been doing a lot more he could have if he had chosen mm -hmm. he could have done very well you know in magazine work and then he went off to the academy julian in uh, in paris which is where all the canadians most of the canadians who studied and over went over to see paris is where you went but the julian was where you went this private academy and I think the important thing for Jackson with the Academy really wasn't the instruction because you only got about 10 minutes of that a week. It was this group of other young, you know, ambitious artists from all over the world. His circle was mainly, you know, Americans, New Zealanders, Australians, but it was a very early sign that he needed a he needed a cohort. He needed a group of people around him. They may not have had a shared philosophy of what they were going to paint, but they're going to work on this together. So that was, you know, that that was any, and then he spends two longish trips to Europe where he paints, you know, works on his skills. And by 1908, he's getting it together. He's a, he's becoming, you know, quite capable as what I would call an impressionistic naturalist. And by 1910, he's pretty much fully formed as an artist. You obviously see the year 1913 as significant. In fact, you, in a, a neat literary device, you begin your book with 1913. Can you describe to us what was beginning to change in the art scene in Canada, especially with respect to landscape art? Why was that such a pivotal period? Yeah, pivotal is a good word because I have this idea. I don't use it in every book I've done, but I like the idea of to start. It's not always the chronology you follow. You're looking for the point around which your story is going to rotate. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to figure out where is that spot where I can drop in. And then you're looking forward and behind. And it's got to be this critical. I, I always think of it as a pivot point, but it's a threshold. So 1913 is really important because we. I introduced you to Jackson in the spring of 1913 because two things are happening. He's two, a number of intertwined things are happening, but he's just come back from Europe. He's just had a group, a, a joint show 
uh, with his good friend Randolph Hewton. He's in the spring exhibition of the Montreal Art Association of Montreal. And this is happening right at a time when art criticism is in complete panic in Canada over the rise of what we would call the modern. The whole post-impressionist movement of Cubism and Futurism, all these isms are coming along and it's going to destroy culture as we know it. And so Jackson and, and Hewton rather surprisingly find themselves in the white heat of, of the criticism that spring, you know, in the in the exhibitions in Montreal, even though you know, Jackson didn't think much of Cubism at all and all these other isms, but he was he was a bit of a target critically. But it's also at a point where he is just meeting and he's not even meeting them physically. He's exchanging letters with two key artists in Toronto, J.H. McDonald and Lauren Harris. And they're going and it's mainly the letters between Jackson and Harris that are happening where they're starting to kind of suss out, well, where can Canadian art go? What are, what are we going to do here? What is it? What can we do that's different that's going to be distinctive? So Jackson and Harris are really sort of whacking this ball back and forth between each other in on paper. They're not going to meet until June. But they, uh, you know, by the end of that discussion, Jackson himself has pretty much figured it out. He's going to paint a canvas called Cedar Swamp. And um, he's out in the eastern townships, and it's so predictive of what the Group of Seven will do that he's actually going to hang it in, the, in, a, in a Group of Seven show in 1921. He's pretty much nailed the entire philosophy, which to boil it down is to be, you know, it has to be more than representational. It has to be more than this naturalism. There's going to be elements of design. There's going to be, you know, interpretation. It's going to be clear and crisp and bright. And that's why that period is, is so important. The, the group is almost happening before the group has even met. And that went by the name of the Algonquin School before it became the Group of Seven after. So tell me, what was this nascent sort of Algonquin School? I'm not sure the, the painters who were painting it used the term themselves. It was, a, it was, a, it was applied to them because... May of 1913, Jackson goes to Toronto to meet these people, and he meets J.H. McDonald, he meets Lauren Harris, he meets Arthur Lismer, he meets Frederick Varley, who's just come from England, like Lismer had just done recently. He's starting to see this group of people, and in the he decides to move to Toronto, uh, and in the fall of 1913, he's going to meet Tom Thompson. And with Thompson, he's going to share a studio in the new studio building, which uh, um, Dr. James McCallan is underwriting and underwriting a lot of what these these painters are doing. And then he and Thompson go to Algonquin Park together in the winter of 1914. They're going to paint in the park together. Lismer will paint with Thompson. So a lot of what they start doing is really associated with Algonquin Park. So by the fall of 1914, the critics are looking around and they're saying, well, this is the Algonquin Park School, even though it's they're really painting much more than that. Your book really demonstrates the enormous impact of the Great War on Jackson. And as he stated himself, and you quote in the book, my life divides from before and after the war, just like BC and AD. Can you summarize his uh, war experiences and how they changed them, perhaps at a very high level, and then we'll, we'll go through particular experiences after. But just to give us a general idea, what happened? Well, he comes back from painting in BC, where he learns about the war in August 1914, and he's not really keen to go at all. Uh, he's he's And he thinks it's going to be over in three months. His friend Randolph Hewton 
his fellow artists. He enlists right away. So he has pressure from Randolph to follow him. His younger brother, Bill, enlists. So he's got a family member that's in. Jackson is the only member of the group that is going to enlist and go overseas and and, and see combat. It, none of the other uh, artists are going to do this. And, and, and the turning point for Jackson clearly is the spring of 1915 when Canada tastes its first bloody taste of combat at what's called Second Ypres. That's where the Germans, for the first time, used flamethrowers and uh, chlorine gas. His brother was in that battle. And he's actually, and, and Jackson's also in Montreal, where, where Montreal has this horrific experience of its sort of elite class who had filled all these officers' ranks were just being massacred at, at Second Ypres. So he's in a city that's stunned by this, raising a new regiment, the 60th Battalion, trying to reinforce the Princess Pats. And I think by June of 1915, the pressure is just too much for him. He just cannot look at himself and think that these other fellows are going and this battle is, and I'm going to go. And he, and he enlists as a private. Uh, he decides he's going to go in at the ground floor. He's a social Democrat, um, self-described, and he's he's going to go with the regular men. He, he Lauren Harris, who's very wealthy, uh, offers him a chance to go to England like Harris's brother did. And you know, why don't you go over and get an officer's commission and you could serve in the British Army? He doesn't want to do that. He wants to go in as a, as a foot soldier. So he does. He goes in and, go, and ends up in combat in the spring of 1916. And in terms of the, his enlistment, uh, I understand he had major differences with Tom Thompson. Can you describe what happened between the two men? It's sort of a silence that you try to read. It's not. There's no record of them bickering with each other. And part of the problem with Thompson is he leaves us so little to read even. He wasn't a letter writer where Jackson never tired of writing letters to everybody and anybody about everything. Mm-hmm. Thompson was appalled by the war. Varley's wife remembers being on a street corner with him and saying, you know, the, all the men marching by in the fall of 1914 and saying four months, hell, this is going to be four years. He, he, he just thought the whole thing was ridiculous. Uh, Jackson felt that he was a conscientious objector. He didn't know how he was near the end of the war because they were apart by then. But there's a really interesting letter. I mean, I mean, Thompson, unlike other members who would be who would be people who become members of the group, he was single. He was unattached. He was a very vibrant, healthy young man. He was paddling around Algonquin Park working as a fire ranger. And you know, so I think Jackson could understand why, you know, people like, you know, Harris and others weren't enlisting. But there's a, there's a letter from Jackson to J.H. McDonald when he's in training in camp in England at Christmas 1915. And he ends it by just saying, give my best to Lauren and Arthur, which is Lismer and Harris. And McDonald was spending a lot of time with Thompson. They were working together on a lot of occasional assignments. And I thought that was a real, I, I'm not acknowledging him at all at this point. It's... yeah. When Thompson dies, you know, in his mysterious canoeing accident, Jackson is devastated by it. And whatever misgivings he had about Thompson vis-a-vis the war evaporate. But at the point of combat, Thompson is almost a non-person to him at that point. And can you describe uh, A.Y. Jackson's own experiences in France? He eventually described it as a stupid, useless game. Obviously, his battle experiences were quite formidable. Just uh, give us a brief summary of what happened to him. I mean, he was always a very cynical guy who who thought higher command were idiots. And, you know, it was a magnificent army that was misled a lot of the time. Um, But when he got to combat, 
And when he gets to the front, there's a very evocative letter to, I think it's his mother, where he says, it's like approaching a giant steelworks. It's really a wonderful description of this clanging, you know, industrial experience. And, you know, he's walked into this alienating, mechanized horror, and he realizes very quickly, just because of their own casualties, they're not really even in combat combat, but they're just losing men just day after day because of the incessant shelling on the Ypres salient. And he starts to realize that, you know, living or dying in this is going to be, have nothing to do with how well I'm trained or how brave I am or what daring do. It's, it's just complete chance. I could die. I could be killed 50 yards from the German lines as I could be three miles back sitting in a signal station. Um, and it, his one and only experience is Sanctuary Wood in June of 1916. It's a horrific uh, front-wide assault by the Germans. Um, half of his battalion ends up casualties. And Jackson, uh, in the midst of this nightmare, is wounded by shrapnel in his shoulder and hip. And that becomes the end of his combat experience. So what was the impact of his physical and, as you point out, some of his mental injuries his medical record is is curiously incomplete, but it's very clear from his letters home that he's experienced shell shock. He's he's completely traumatized by this, as as you would expect him to be. He he alludes to some of it, the nightmares in some of his letters, but he goes through a period of a year where he's in that kind of no man's land of, you know, he's not unwell enough to just discharge and send home, but he's not fit enough to send back into the line again. So he's bouncing around camps in England for for literally for a year. He's like sorting mail and stuff like that and waiting, you know, having medical reviews every month and mm-hmm. tries to get an he tries to get up to an officer's level, but he claims the medical officer threw all his records away and said, you know, you're too old to do this. Um so he's kind of sitting there wondering what's going to happen to him next. And he's very fearful of going back into the front that he's eventually going to be sent back as a private again, because he knows he can't, he can't do it. He just cannot survive this mentally or physically. So he ends up as a war artist with the Canadian War Memorials Fund, which operates out of Max Aiken's uh, Canadian War Records office. Of course, I've always been interested in Max Aiken, but can you tell us about sort of how he ended up as a war artist in particular, his interview with Max Aiken, which I found both peculiar and yet so typical of Max Aiken, Lord Beaverbrook, but it must have been quite surprising to A.Y. Jackson. Yeah, Jackson was knocking around this camp and there was a Canadian portrait painter who had heard of this, you know, movement that Aiken was getting going. And you know, he forwards Jackson's name as someone that might be useful to him because the concern was that Beaverbrook knew nothing about art. He really didn't. We know the Beaverbrook Gallery, but that's really because of Beaverbrook's enthusiasms after the Second World War. In the first, he, he didn't know a thing about art. He just thought, we need to record the Canadian experience of every the battle, the home front and all that. So he had others advising him. And the concern was he was just hiring a bunch of British artists to do, mm-hmm. you know, works about Canadians. And here was Jackson you know, a recognized Canadian artist in the army. So Jackson gets an interview. He goes down to London from his camp. It's that blazing, typical, as you understand, Beaverbrook just firing off questions about, are you a good artist? Do you have any paintings? You know, really doesn't know anything about them. Um, 
he's he's fortunate that he's got there's some articles written up in the studio magazine about him so he collects some copies of the magazine and shows them to him and then he gets called back for a second interview and as jackson says when he walks in at first beaverton looks at him and he doesn't, he doesn't even remember who he is and then he just turns to an adjunct and says make this man a lieutenant and all the artists are you know jackson was a rarity that he was actually already in the army an army but all the other artists who were being plucked off the street with these commissions they were given honorary um you know officers ranks um above nco so jackson came in at a fairly lowly lieutenant others were getting majors ranks but that's how that's how he came in he was made a lieutenant and you know off it was to go be a landscape artist in france so what was the corpus of work as a war artist? Because Jackson did some awfully interesting work at the time as a war artist. But there were a whole group of artists that seemed to be doing this work in a different genre that really, really forged a lot of work that would come after in the 20th century. So it was really a formative period. But can you describe his own work during the war? Well, Jackson re- immediately recognized the dilemma that most everyone else recognized when you went to paint this war is, is what on earth can you do with it? How do you, why do you want to show it? And, and how are you going to show it? Because the old school of, you know, charge of the light brigade heroics of giant canvases, 10 feet wide with a million figures in it, that was considered over and done. It's not going to work, even though some paintings were commissioned that did precisely that. Um, but if you're not going to do that, what are you going to do? How are you going to capture this experience? And and Jackson was someone who, who had the visceral experience of the war. So he knew he didn't want to do what he called the cookups, which were these, you know, giant widescreen paintings of thousands of figures or whatever. Um, he also didn't want to do the literally visceral war. I think I don't think he was capable of doing it mentally. He didn't want to show the dead and the mutilated in the trenches. So, you know, his first visit of all things was to Passchendaele in fall of 1917, just a horrendous mud-soaked disaster. But he couldn't get very near the front just because of logistics. So he was kind of left wandering around, you know, the back country of the front, you know, painting kind of landscapes and really worried that he wasn't getting what he was supposed to be getting and and that Jackson, a rare among everyone else, if they didn't like what he was doing, he was going back into service. He was going back to the front himself, this time with a gun in his hands. And he was very concerned about that. But he got a second chance in the spring of 1918. They sent him back again. And it was in and around Lens where he really figured it out quite brilliantly. I, I think some of his best paintings in his entire life were done in, in, the, in 1918, 19, uh, because of that you know period. And what Jackson des- decided was if he was going to show war, what he needed to show was the effects of war on the landscape. If I could make you understand what that what that vista was, I could make you understand the war and the consequences of the war. So so figures very seldom, you know, appear in his work, but he was given an area to work where there was just miles of nothing just because of the nature of the front around lens. And I, what I what I say in the book, I think what he was very good at in these canvases was he would give you what the war did in the foreground and the middle ground. This is the destruction. But in the background on the horizon, he always had this sort of elevated horizon. There was this atmospheric violence going on. And some of them, it's almost like a Georgian Bay squall that's happening. It's rolling in. And you're never quite sure whether you're looking at weather or whether you're looking at war going on, you know, the artillery barrages and whatnot. And he does a very good job of blending that natural, that natural experience, that, 
you know, weather, you know, phenomenon and, and the destruction of the human beings. So he's, he gives you the before and then he gives you, this is what's still churning away, still ch- chunking up the land and consuming human beings out on the, out on the fur horizon. And those are his most effective paintings from that period. After the Great War, the group of seven does come together. Uh, can you very briefly tell us that story and how the war helped forge the group? Because you have, of course, the sketching trip to Algoma country with Harris, McDonald, and Johnston in fall of 1919, and then the what appeared to be the, the seminal Toronto Art Museum show of 1920. But can you give us a, a brief narrative of what occurred here that really formed the group? Well, I think, first of all, for the war, the war did two things. It made some of them, including Jackson, a better artist. It certainly, Varley went over as a war artist in 1918, and Varley really realized his true potential. J.H. McDonald became a better painter because he was working alongside Tom Thompson in that period in, in the peacetime side of the war. Mm-hmm. But the war was really a, a near-run thing for the entire group. I mean, it almost didn't come out of it because Jackson easily could have been killed in action. He could have been mentally so damaged he couldn't go back again. In fact, he even talked about how hard it was to paint again uh, after he got home. Harris, because his his younger brother was killed in action in February 1918, he had a severe nervous breakdown. Um, and it was a big effort to come back from that. Um, J.H. McDonald had a stroke he was a long time recovering from that, and he was never really 100%. Arthur Lismer went to Halifax to run an art school, and then so he was around when a munition ship blew up and killed 2,000 people. It you know shut down his art school, which was used to store coffins. So, and then Tom Thompson died in a Kuna accident, and he was so central to this experience of the Northland, as they called it. So, you know, J- Jackson came back with some ambitions, but it was Harris who... You know, he set up a, you know, like a caboose that would be taken along the rail on the rails up to Algoma. They'd go on sightings and they'd go out and paint and they kind of got at it again. And even Lismer, even Jackson in, in a letter home during the war said to Liz, Lismer, says, the only way we're going to get anywhere is if we work together as a group. It really felt strong and they needed a group movement. So I, th- I think there, there was, without Thompson, there was a core of Jackson, Lismer, McDonald, Varley, sort of, and Harris, definitely. And whether it was because Harris needed a mystical number of seven and they needed seven people to get in, they threw in Franz Johnson or Frank Johnson and they threw in uh, Carmichael, who hadn't done very much with them. He was a younger guy. And in fact, Jackson, after the first show, said Johnson and Carmichael really belong in a different exhibition. Uh, It was almost like a group of five. Carmichael persisted. Johnson left the group and then taught art in Winnipeg. So... You know, so Jackson is kind of rejuvenated by it, goes back. He he paints in Algoma. He paints in Georgian Bay, you know, in the spring, producing some new work. I think one of the most interesting things about the group in that first show is that there were actual war paintings in it. Lismer, Varley and Jackson all showed war paintings. And I think Jackson's first canvases that he painted at home really were in spirit, they were war paintings. His paintings like March Storm, Georgian Bay, and his painting of snow in Algoma country, they're very forbidding landscapes. They're not inviting. They're violent. Um, they're unpleasant. You don't want to be there at all. Uh, they they very much evoke this feeling of being in a place where you just don't want to be around. Um so that's that's kind of how they get back on their feet after the war. They take the, they take the numbers that they have 
among them who are still wanting to go ahead and they put the show together. But as I said, you know, aesthetically, they'd kind of worked, even though they had progressed as painters, many of them during the war, they had kind of figured out what they were going to do in 1913. It was all mapped and quite well defined. It was getting through this war that they had to first do to get to the point of having the experience of actually showing together. Well, Doug, I have to ask you this. What's your current book project? Well, I'm working right now, although I feel like I've been working on it since 2008. I'm working on a, I always seem to do quite different things, but I'm working on something on um, steamboat disasters in Canada in in the Great Lakes from about 1872 to 1882. Uh, It's where I live. I know some of the wrecks here on Georgian Bay and, you know, wreck and explosions and things always make for interesting stories, I suppose. But I'm, I'm really quite interested in it. And a lot of the story really is this period of just after Confederation of laissez-faire regulation and sort of the triumph of, if you can call that, of capitalism to sort of do whatever it wanted in Canada as opposed to the American side of the waters. And we just had this absolute horrific number of really bad disasters and sinkings and complete losses of everybody on board. And it took until 1882 to finally get the regulations that needed to keep Canadians alive. So it's an interesting period. Well, Doug, I look forward to interviewing you on that book uh, some year in the future. My guest today was Douglas Hunter, the author of Jackson's Wars, A.Y. Jackson, The Birth of the Group of Seven, and The Great War, published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We also want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on October 11th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journals team who also support the Champlain Society. Mm -hmm.